with the scent of potpourri Filled to commit to memory Crossing the felt ropes Watching from home on my TV Looking at all my eyes can see They tell me I view Obsessively. Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer. We're a now weekly podcast reviewing one or two new release uh, titles every episode with an occasional free-for-all segment at the end that we call Potpourri. You can find more of our work including written reviews and the complete backlog of our episodes at obsessiveviewer.com. And if you'd like to support us and get access to hundreds of exclusive episodes, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer or you can buy individual collections of Patreon content in the Patreon shop section of that website at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. This week on the Patreon, um, on Sunday, I released the penultimate part of my six-part review series on Stephen King's Everything's Eventual. Uh, This week, I reviewed... Uh, four short stories, including 1408, which may or may not be the next episode of Tower Junkies. Um, what we, may or may not be what we review in the next episode of Tower Junkies, I should say. Um, and then I also reviewed, um, uh, oh, geez, uh, Lucky Quarter, um, uh, the, the, the Deja Vu one. I can't remember the title of it. Um, that thing you can only say what it is in French, I think is the full title of that story. Um, and then, uh, I'm blanking on the other one, but anyway, I reviewed four, uh, short stories on Patreon, uh, part of my, f- uh, six part series on everything's eventual. Um, that is available to $2, $4, $5 and $10 patrons. The $4 patrons, uh, that get it are in the Stephen King, uh, Patreon exclusive Stephen King stuff, uh, special tier. And then I am also releasing, uh, my 25th Patreon potpourri, which is a series of episodes that I do, which are full length episodes where I review four movies, um, usually it's around award season time. So as I'm now in the crux of award season and I am, uh, watching stuff for the IFJ awards, I'm recording my thoughts and posting them on Patreon for the $5 and $10 a month tier levels. So I've already posted one or two episodes of the, of Patreon potpourri, I think. Um, and then later this week I'll have, uh, the third episode of that up as well. Um, of course, you can sign up at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for all of that and a bunch more content. And it definitely goes uh, toward uh, paying the fees to keep the podcast running and keeping me fed and keeping pizza uh, warm. So uh, so consider signing up over at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer if you have the means and you want to get more content because there is almost 700 posts on there uh, on Patreon, uh, if you want to sub, uh, subscribe, uh, I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and you can find me on social media, including Letterboxd at Obsessive Viewer and on TikTok at OV Podcasts. Um, you can also email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com and, uh, and yeah, just, you know, follow me on all the socials. And today on the show, I'm going to be reviewing the new Ridley Scott movie, Napoleon, which is currently out in theaters. And I'll also be reviewing May, December, in a non-spoilers uh, review toward the end of the episode. Uh, May-December is the new Todd Haynes film, which opened in limited release in theaters on November 17th and is going to be streaming on Netflix on December 1st, so this Friday. And of course, I am solo this episode. Uh, like I said, we're kind of going weekly, weekly now, and 
because of that. Uh, some weeks I'm going to do solo episodes because I don't want to bother people with getting, getting, uh, wrangling up guests or bothering Tiny to, uh, to, to watch something and then, and then record about it because he's very busy. Um, and, and we're going to be recording Tower Junkies later this week anyway. So, um, so this is going to be a solo episode. It's still something I'm kind of feeling out on the obsessive viewer side of things of the podcasts that I do and everything. So it's an adjustment. It's a new era for the podcast. So I don't know, but anyway. Anyway, it's it's exciting. Um, it's my fifth consecutive week posting an episode, so that's exciting, um, which which is awesome. So anyway, uh, this is the problem with doing solo episodes because I'm going to sidetrack myself way too much. So we have a packed show tonight. Um, like I said, we're going to be reviewing Napoleon and May, December. Those are the two main uh, reviews of this episode. And then... Um, after that, I'll probably throw out a, a quick potpourri section. But before all of that, I have some news, uh, some entertainment news that I want to talk through because holy crap, the past week has been rough for fans of a certain slasher franchise, um, which we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to uh, share the good news that Black Mirror was renewed for a season seven by Netflix. Um from the sound of it, there's no there's no real details on it or anything. There's no casting or anything, and there's no um, there's no there's no telling when it will air. However, um, Variety uh, apparently let's see. So this was an exclusive that was broken by Variety on November twenty first. And this this really uh, stood out to me because it said no casting has been confirmed yet for season seven, but Variety understands the show is set to go into production later this year uh, with Brooker, Annabelle Jones and Jessica uh, Rhodes believed to be returning as executive producers. Plot details and number of episodes are still being kept under wraps. The fact that they're saying that it's going to go in, that it could go into production later this year when there is what five weeks left of the year is kind of crazy. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know how viable that is as, as a, as um news or how truthful it could be. But I mean, I'm excited. Like I love Black Mirror and I still need to cover season six on anthology, but I, I just love that show and I'm excited to see what happens. Even with, even with season six, not some, some, in some respects, it didn't really live up that well to my, um, the, the weight that it took to get those episodes, but it's still, it's still Black Mirror. It's still unique storytelling, um, and it's still something that I that I will watch whenever it airs. So uh, I'm excited for season seven. Um, I don't know what um, what could possibly come from it, really, because season six had such a different tone um, from the previous seasons as a whole. Like there was straight up like horror episodes, like like just horror episodes that didn't really have anything to do with technology or science fiction, just straight up horror, supernatural stuff. And that was a weird departure. Um, that was one of the points in the, in the, the season where I was kind of not really that fond of it. Um, but it was unique. It was interesting and it was new for, um, for the show. So it's interesting that they're able to uh, branch out and everything. So that's the good news this week that I have to share on Obsessive Viewer. The bad news, the terrible news, the, 
<sighs> news that I'm going to have to uh, to work out my feelings on on the mic is that um, news broke on Jesus on November 21st. So six days ago, less than a week ago, I'm reading from Bloody Disgu- Bloody Disgusting. Scream and Scream Six star Melissa Barrera will apparently will reportedly not be returning for the upcoming Scream Seven. Um, it was first uh, reported in this week's digital issue of Van- uh, Variety magazine. Uh, THR adds filming had not begun and development had been slow amid the writers and actors or actors and writer strikes. Now Spyglass is expected to recalibrate plans following Barrera. Um, so here's, here's what has happened and it's going to be a little bit, not tricky, but it's going to be something that I, uh, I'm going to have to kind of work through here, but basically, um, good Lord, this whole thing has been a freaking mess and it is reflected very poorly upon Spyglass Media Group, the, the studio at the head of it. So let me try to break it down how I understand it, how I see things. So Melissa Barrera has posted on social media, on Instagram in particular, in her Instagram stories, support for the people of Palestine in the Israel-Gaza uh, Strip and Israel-Hamas conflict. Um and in doing so, she has caught the ire of uh, Spyglass Media Group, who has construed her support for uh, civilian lives being lost in this ongoing war and conflict. Um, they have extrapolated that to be anti-Semitic and have extrapolated that into being something that is against their uh, I guess core beliefs or what have you. It, it, they, they released a statement. I don't have it in front of me, but it was basically saying that we don't condone, um, we don't condone anti-Semitism or, uh, false, uh, false accounts of genocide or false comparisons to the Holocaust because she had said that, you know, there are kids dying in Gaza. There are kids dying. Palestinian children are dying and it's a genocide and it's like, like, basically expressing that and they fired her from screen scream seven because of it uh abruptly completely abruptly and that is such a wrong-headed move for just for uh, pr perspectives and everything but the the whole thing going on i i am not i am not going to talk about the the conflict in the middle east because i do not have near enough knowledge about anything going on over there. But the fact is that the, what it, what it comes down to is that Melissa Barrera was not saying anything, anything, uh, like the, the idea that what she was communicating was anti-Semitic or was otherwise problematic or anything that wasn't, um, wasn't from her own, like, like, I don't think that there was anything particularly incendiary uh toward a group of people in in those comments that's that's my perception of it um and to twist that around to 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 claim that she was being anti-semitic and to claim that she was being hateful and hurtful and everything um is a bizarre overreaction and it's something that feels very inappropriate i guess and it just feels very 
it 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 feels it feels very uh knee jerk and reactionary. Now this isn't the end of this story though, because the day after the day after uh Melissa Barrero was fired, uh it was announced that Jenna Ortega is not expected to return for Scream 7. And here is the thing. So uh, that the the article the announcement of that um, it says deadline clarifies uh, Jenna Ortega's exit has nothing to do with the fallout from Melissa Barrera's firing yesterday by Spyglass Media over the actress's social media repostings on the Hamas Israel conflict. Nor does it have to do with the actress asking for an end to her Scream contract. The website also notes we understand that Ortega's exit from the next Scream was discussed before the actor strike. A script for Scream 7 is not ready yet and the primetime Emmy nominee has to head to Ireland in April to shoot the second season of Netflix's Wednesday which will go into the summer. I call the biggest bag of bullshit on that (laughs) like i do not believe for a single single second that jenna ortega exiting scream 7 had anything to do with anything other than her co-star being fired for supporting palestine like there is i cannot imagine any other reason for the the timing of it and everything and the fact that uh that spyglass is like was immediately on the um on on the pr spin of that and how it like was immediately flooded with information about oh yeah she was it was being talked about before the actor strike ended and before the actor strike took took place and everything that she was going to have to um, she was, she was going to have to, have to leave the, um, production anyway, because of Wednesday. And here's why I call bullshit on that, because it says that the filming of Wednesday, which would, would go into the summer scream, scream seven, the, the turnaround time from scream five to scream six was within a calendar year. There is no fucking way that that Spyglass, that anyone involved with the production of Scream 7, Christopher Landon, who I'll talk about him in a bit, in a minute, he's the new director for for the franchise after Radio Silence uh, moved on. Um, There is no way that (laughs) there is no way that no one involved in the production of Scream 7 would willfully see an avenue in which Jenna Ortega would not be in the movie. They would move production around. They would postpone the start of production to accommodate her schedule because Jenna Ortega is the fucking reason that Scream 6 had the biggest opening in the franchise's history. Um, it, like, it is unbelievable that they would try to spin that as like oh yeah jenna ortega who also supports palestine by the way vocally on social media is not going to return for scream 7 the day after her co-star was fired for that reason like there is no way that it's a scheduling conflict what like what is going on 
it is insanity. It is insanity. Um, and I feel bad for Christopher Landon. Uh, like I said, the aforementioned director, he's the new director for Scream 7. He uh, previously directed um, Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You, and I believe Freaky as well. Yeah. Um, and I was excited for him to direct this movie. I'm not that excited for this movie now because of all of the shitstorm that has happened in the last week, but I am, I was and am sort of still excited for him to take the reins of the Scream franchise. Um, but with everything in such a, a steep disarray tailspin, I don't know what to think. He had said on Twitter or on Twitter, uh, I'm reading from an article in deadline. It said Christopher Landon, uh, posted on X slash Twitter, um, and then removed the tweet. He said, quote, this is my statement, heart emoji. Everything sucks. Stop yelling. This was not my decision to make. And then presumably, um, Spyglass, uh, asked him to remove that. So he, he deleted the tweet. And here's, here's the, here's the, um, uh, here, here's the statement that Spyglass made in light of Melissa Barrera's, um, uh, firing. They said, uh, Spyglass's stance is unequivocally clear. We have zero tolerance for anti-Semitism or the incitement of hate in any form, including false references to genocide, ethnic cleansing, Holocaust distortion, or anything that flagrantly crosses the line into hate speech. Again, she is saying that the loss of tens and tens and tens and tens and hundreds of thousands or over a hundred thousand, maybe, uh, innocent lives in Palestine is a genocide, is ethnic cleansing because of the way that Israel is targeting, uh, people in Gaza and like all of the things that have been come up in that have been coming out in, in the wake of this conflict really bubbling over. And so it just seems very, again, reactionary, and it, the damage control that Spyglass is trying to do now also is laughable. It is laughable, because then, after Jenna Ortega's exit, uh, reports were coming out that uh, supposedly Spyglass was angling to redo, to like rework Scream, uh, either reboot it entirely with Scream 7, or bring back past uh, actors. And here's the thing. <laughs> here's where I am chuckling through the tears of the, like, the downfall of my favorite franchise. Um, they want, it was reported or rumored that they wanted to bring back Nev Campbell and Patrick Dempsey from Scream 3. Uh, Nev Campbell... As you guys should probably know, uh, when they offered her a role in Scream 6, you know, the the sixth installment of the franchise that she had been in every single installment of, had been the main character of, was the franchise's final girl, and uh, helped build it up and everything, uh, they offered her a a a payday that was not to her liking, so they could not match her desire for, like, for what um she felt she brought to the franchise rightly so so she walked away from it so here's my thing the kind of just like the audacity of the studio to think okay well we're burning this bridge of the of of Melissa Barrera who has been the main character in Screams 5 and 6 her story arc 
is what has been the all-encompassing arc of these two installments of the movies of of the franchise um we're gonna burn that bridge and then oh no the the like the massive star the massive movie star that is in these movies jenna ortega is now going to back out of it so now what are we going to do we're going to go back to the star of the franchise um to the one that we burned last year by by under by offering her a a a sum of money that was not uh equitable to what she brings to the franchise and we're going to try to bring her back to make her the front and center of it like how deluded do you how deluded are you with that like how delusional and crazy is that like you are you you have burned the bridges of the two stars of the franchise two of the stars of the franchise two of the core four um and now you're going back to try to mend fences with the uh with the actor that you previously burned a bridge with um my god like it is this is just such a mess it is an absolute mess and at this point i've seen like a lot of people on on tiktok and on twitter uh saying that they're going to boycott scream 7 and and blah 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 um and i don't know what i'm going to do <laughs> like to be honest i i mean i'm i'm sure i'll see it because i'm not one to really boycott things like that i guess but it's like this is i remember like coming out of the theater for scream 6 i have i think i have like a note in my or i had a note for my theories on scream 6 but also i had a note for what i would want to see scream 7 to have specifically so i could show mike that after he and i have both seen scream 7 and we could talk about it that is the level of enthusiasm that i have for this franchise in this this future and the future of the franchise and that enthusiasm is gone. I have no enthusiasm for this now. I, I don't, it, and it's so weird because I really like Scream 6. I love Scream, uh, Scream, uh, Scream 22. Um, those are two very, very good installments of this franchise. And I wanted them to go on. I wanted them to go on without any, um, any you know issues or anything and here we are and like and i also kind of admit a little bit of i guess i don't know if i'd say culpability in it but i do admit a level of um uh, something that i'm i'm kind of working through is how how ex how much i let go the um the idea or I let go of the the issue of Nev Campbell's pay in Scream Six, like the the uh, the dialogue that was that references Sydney in Scream Six is probably my least favorite part of the movie. Um, I talked about it in in the review, um, but it's also something that I think that my excitement for Scream Six, my my excitement for a new installment was something that she that that uh shielded me from that it it definitely um it it kind of uh i don't know it shielded me from from being too uh annoyed by the pay dispute thing so 
I think that this news coming out is kind of retroactively making me think like, yeah, that was that was really messed up. That was really underhanded and crappy of them to do that. And now they're on such a bigger scale in terms of losing two two of their stars over something as significant as uh, their perspectives on a, a serious conflict. Um, it's all very, very messy. So I don't know. I <laughs> dump it, dump it. Don't make Scream 7. Let it sit for a while. Let the rights go to someone else and pay the actors what they want. And it just, I just can't, I, it's just, it's been just such a whirlwind. It has been a whirlwind of a week with, uh, the Scream 7 news. So, those are my thoughts on all of that. Um, I hope that that makes sense. And if you have any insight or any any opinions on that or thoughts on that as well, um, feel free to let me know. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, send me an email, matt at obsessiveviewer.com uh, or comments wherever um, and join the Patreon. Uh, Got to get one more one more plug for the Patreon in there uh, as well. So that's all the news I have this this week. Um, it's significant news, and uh, hopefully, it hopefully something works out. Hopefully, something is uh, worked out and things um, uh, get better. But even if, like I I was talking to Mike about this, that even if um, even if fences are mended. Even if things come out, like, even if there is, um, there is reconciliation and if Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega are brought back into the fold, back to the table and Spyglass says something like good about how they were out of line or how, how reactionary their response was. I don't know if something were to happen for them to, uh, like mend fences. I don't know if that would be enough because I feel like this has been such a public, just PR nightmare and a public, um, a, a public disgrace for the, for the studio and a public, um, uh, blow up basically that even if there is reconciliation, they come back into the movie, they're, they're able to, to make the movie the way it was originally going to be made. Even if that's the case, the entire production, the entire end product of Scream 7 is going to have that tainted feeling to it that there, that there was this behind the scenes drama and, just a lot of stuff and it's it's it sucks it sucks you guys it really does i don't know um so that's my rambling news section for this week um let me know what you thought about these uh these news items uh black mirror renewed for season seven so yeah to bring it back to something positive that's great <laughs> so uh so yeah but i we will we will keep you guys up to date on all the scream seven um developments as they occur uh, but to move away from the news section for this episode, let me go into my first review of the evening. It is the main feature review, a movie that is in theaters right now. Um, it was uh, it premiered on uh, in theaters on Thanksgiving weekend. It is Napoleon. And of course, I'm going to do a non-spoiler review. And then when I transition over into a spoiler review, I will play a clip from the trailer if you want to avoid spoilers and 
go to my next review, check the show notes for timestamps on the uh, where to navigate um, in the file to get to where you need to go. Those show notes are in the uh, notes section of whatever podcast app you're listening to. Um, or if you don't have those readily available, check out obsessiveviewer.com slash OV404. That's the homepage for the episode, and that's where all the timestamps and links and everything live. So uh, without further ado, let's go into my non-spoiler review of Napoleon. Uh, And to bring us into that, the plot summary courtesy of IMDb is an epic that details the checkered rise and fall of French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte and his relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his wife, Josephine. Director for this movie was Ridley Scott. Writer was David Scarpa. And the cast includes Joaquin Joaquin Phoenix as uh, Napoleon, Vanessa Kirby, Tahir Rahim, and Rupert Everett, among others in the cast. So my expectations for Napoleon were kind of middling. Um, I was very much a fan of uh, Ridley Scott's previous movie, The Last Duel. Um, I, I just looked really quickly at the... Um, at at his uh at his, at his um IMDb and like oh I guess oh I guess technically House of Gucci came out the same year but I did I didn't even see House of Gucci but um the last duel I was a big fan of that I thought that that was really fantastic and um I thought that the the eye for detail in terms of the battle sequences or the action was really was really strong and I mean that's something that is part and parcel with Ridley Scott's uh big like big uh, dramas and historical epics. Um, that is something that he is known for, that he does well, um, which is also worth noting that this is the first uh, collaboration between uh, Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix since uh, Gladiator in like, what was that, 2000? Uh, so it's it's been a long time coming. And this is a movie that, so like I said, I was, I had middling expectations because even though I was really pretty taken with The Last Duel, um, I, I kind of felt like, um, I, I came into Napoleon with this position that, you know, this could blow my mind. This could be amazing. This could be everything that, everything the epic that the trailers make it out to be. Or it can be a snooze fest dad movie, basically. Uh, so it could go either way. But I kept an open mind and I went and saw an early morning screening uh, of the movie. I went to the 11 o'clock showing um, on Saturday morning. And overall, I will say that I was not wholly disappointed. Um, and this is something that I... Um, kind of wish I had a co-host on <laughs> for this review because I don't know how much I'm going to have to actually say about it. This is a perfectly serviceable and in parts, um, in parts impressive three-star movie out of five. That's kind of where I'm coming down on it. Um, now it's worth noting that Ridley Scott has said that he intentionally cut the film to be around two and a half hours long because he has, he said that, um, 
He believes that two and a half hours is the longest amount of time that someone can be expected to sit in a theater and watch a movie without getting bored or getting getting uh, uncomfortable or having to take a shit, basically. Um, which, by the way, Ridley Scott's kind of press tour with this movie has been amazing when he has been uh, questioned about the authenticity and the historical accuracy and stuff. He has had some of the greatest, like, just... Uh, just like curmudgeonly, uh, old manish responses. So, uh, let's see, I'm going to pull one here. Um, it's a little bit lower here. So, um, here's one that, um, basically, uh, this isn't a direct quote, but it says some French media have argued that the movie demonizes a French historical hero and shows the British in a positive light. Sir Ridley Scott scoffed at the allegations and said he heard nothing, nobody booing when he attended the premiere in Paris. He also joked that the French don't even like themselves. Um, and then, uh, he also said, uh, in response to criticisms of historical inaccuracies, Sir Ridley Scott simply said, get a life. When further pressed by historians, he added, when I have issues with historians, I ask, excuse, uh, excuse me, mate, were you there? No. Well, shut the fuck up then. Uh, and I just, I love that. I love that whole attitude toward it. I know that there was some, uh, in some circles, there was questions about how there's no like French accents or the accent work. And to that, I, I think that that is a non-issue. That is an absolute non-issue, um, in the finished product and just in general, because we all saw Chernobyl. We all saw, uh, Chernobyl had no like Russian accents and it was still a freaking masterpiece. Um, so that's, that's, I don't care about any historical inaccuracies with accents in this movie. Um, but like I was saying, uh, Ridley Scott intentionally cut it to two and a half hours long for the, for the theatrical cut. He has said that there is going to be when it, when it, um, premieres on Apple TV plus that there is going to be a, I believe he said four hour director's cut. And of course, it's Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott is known for very, very good director's cuts. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit um, hesitant to review this movie in a solo episode. Um, and that's because it felt so lackluster. It felt so uh, so empty. It felt like there was not enough uh, attention paid to things like Napoleon's relationship with Josephine and his motivations, what he has done, what he does throughout the movie, that rise to power did not feel like it was something that felt like it was organically tied to his motivations or it was organically, or even it, it didn't even really feel like it was uh, presented to us in a very convincing or compelling manner. Um, and what I mean by that is that we see like snippets of battles that he is, uh, overseeing and that he is, that he is, um, uh, basically taking part in. And then from there we get like a jumped, it's, it's kind of like a, like a series of vignettes of different time periods in, in France. So like we go through the French revolution and we go through like, uh, an insurgency or, um, or an overthrow, like the coup that leads to him being crowned king of, or emperor of France. Um, and that is all very vital pieces of his story. 
but it all feels like it's just kind of piecemealed together. There doesn't really feel like there is a very strong narrative connective tissue between the different parts of his life that are depicted on screen. And that that would be enough to sink this movie to like the point of two star ratings for me. But what the movie does do kind of in uh kind of instead of that is it does in it does kind of express a lot of Napoleon's deep-seated insecurities vis-a-vis his relationship with Josephine. There is um a there is not quite enough of the of the um character development between the two. There's not enough of a connection formed between the two or an, enough uh, of a narrative through line with their relationship. But what we do get is solid enough. And I realize that that is a backhanded compliment to end all backhanded compliments, but I kind of stand by it because I got kind of the gist of it. And that was kind of my overall thoughts on the movie at the end of the day was that I kind of feel like I got the gist of Napoleon. And what's a what what's such a bummer about that is that I've got the gist of it, but this is a massive historical figure. This is a massive figure in history who has a ton of history about him. And I also kind of went in with a little bit of a bias because I knew that Kubrick had been working on uh, a Napoleon movie for years. I think that after uh, after 2001 A Space Odyssey, he wanted to work, he, he worked tirelessly and researched exhaustively a biopic for Napoleon. And I think he either couldn't crack it or he just, he just, it just, it just fell by the wayside. It was something that he couldn't really get a handle on. And so knowing that, knowing that there is enough material about Napoleon, obviously, to basically crack the master that is Stanley Kubrick and to where he couldn't find a road into it. I do think I brought in a little bit of a bias to this, to this movie because Ridley Scott is an amazing filmmaker. Um, but having a two and a half hour, um, experience with, I mean, it's a very beautiful movie, but having it be a little bit lacking in the story department and in terms of the overall narrative was quite a bummer because I was expecting something a lot bigger and a lot meatier, something that would really grab my attention and tell me a multifaceted story of Napoleon Bonaparte. But instead, what we got was a kind of um, checkbox sequence of military exercises and military engagements uh, and a very, very um uh light um uh lightly touched on rise to power all amidst a a very impressively well done and searing portrayal of his insecurities as a man in his uh in his the threat to his masculinity but even then even then those insecurities the the kind of bread and butter of this entire movie and i mean that by I mean that in the sense that Napoleon in this movie 
has is wrestling with these insecurities throughout throughout the movie he can't impregnate his wife he is um he has this shame about being um about about his relationship and and how his wife treats him and and all of these things i'll talk about that in spoilers but he has all of this and that is where the character like resides in the movie um but it doesn't really connect too closely or too well with all of the military engagements and his rise to power. There's a lot, there's a fair amount of connective tissue with his pursuit of power, but it doesn't really create an all encompassing viewpoint of the character. It feels like his power, his place in history is kind of secondary to his, um, to what his relationship was like with Josephine. And that could work and that should work on paper, but I think because it doesn't really seem like it is cohesive with everything else going on in the movie, I feel like that is a bit of a uh, a disservice. And that's where, that's where on one hand, my interest waned severely throughout this movie um, because it didn't have that flair or that, or that kind of connective tissue. Um, and second of all, I don't know if I said first of all or not, I'm not sure, but anyway, and then secondarily, um, it's, it just, it felt like this was a, a watered down movie from Ridley Scott. And that's why I will see the four hour director's cut. And I am sure that that will be uh, far and away head and shoulders better than, than what we got in the theatrical cut. And that is something that I am not too happy about um, because it's, it should be a finished product in theaters. I don't know. It shouldn't be this. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be the theatrical cut should be its own, its own beginning, middle and end story that he wants to tell the director's cut however long it would be, however more long it is than the theatrical cut should enhance that. The director's cut should not be like, oh, this is what I really wanted to say, but I can't fit it all into a projector. So here's a two and a half hour preview reel of the four hour epic that I've worked on that you'll watch at home while streaming it on your and looking at your phone every 20 minutes. Um, that just doesn't feel good. I don't like that. So, uh, so I do have like that, like, even though I'm confident that the, that the director's cut will be so much better. I hate that I have to be put in that position. Like, I hate that that is a position that I have to take with this movie because at the end of the day, the theatrical cut just really wasn't that good. <laughs> it wasn't that good. The performances are very good. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix does a very good job. Um, but everyone else just kind of, again, it is kind of this flat storyline. Um, there's not a lot of character depth to any of the other characters, even Josephine played by Vanessa Kirby, who is an amazing actress. That character is woefully underwritten in the movie. And a lot of the sequences and scenes between her and Napoleon, reside or are uh, reliant on Napoleon's reaction to things, it, not necessarily her, like her viewpoint of things. In fact, there's one scene where she kind of, she kind of, um, uh, emotionally overpowers him. I'll say that. And it's an interesting like reversal in the scene. It's an interesting kind of, 
uh, echo or mirror to Napoleon's insecurities that he is he is trying so hard to be like the man of this relationship and be the person in power. And then she just kind of dresses him down um, and just says something that just completely like deflates him. And like, that's an amazing scene. But also, we don't really get much of a sense of what is driving Josephine. And that's a bummer because I feel like if we had more context for Josephine as a person and for her story in this whole big epic, um, I feel like that would have made for a much more interesting and uh, thought-provoking plot with uh, with Napoleon and Josephine. Um, and it's interesting because I would uh, like i i feel like it would be easy to say well you know you can't really fit all of that in in this epic because there are a lot of huge like military engagements that are jaw dropping gorgeous amazing cinematography incredible just vast um um uh scale um military engagements it's amazing um but Here's the thing, like, the the last duel had an incredibly well-nuanced, uh, like, triptych of story, and it was like a Rashomon thing where it's different perspectives, and, and in each perspective, characters are behaving differently because they're from, the, it's from the viewpoint of another character from, uh, from when we saw the other perspective, um, that is an incredibly rich and layered story, and it had really cool, uh, like, sequences of battles and, and military engagements and stuff. So you can have both, <laughs> and I just feel like Napoleon was 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 very much um, uh, not not up to snuff in in that department. So when you have a story that is an epic, a sweeping epic that's supposed to be a rich character study of this huge historical figure and we and it doesn't really get the get to the point of that or it doesn't really present as strong a case for who that person was and who the who his wife was in relation to him it it just really falls flat it doesn't it just doesn't uh doesn't work for me <laughs> I, I just kind of I don't know I I wasn't really uh, that into it. It did make me at several times. Um, it did make me want to watch Barry Lyndon, uh, Kubrick, Kubrick's movie, which I believe, well, while he was trying to crack Napoleon, he eventually, uh, gave up on that and then made Barry Lyndon. And there were moments in this movie where I, uh, like just the, just the visuals were like, oh my God. Yeah. That, like this reminds me of what I know of Barry Lyndon, which is, admittedly not a lot but just the overall kind of aesthetic of it reminded me of Barry Lyndon uh so I would be very very interested in watching Barry Lyndon probably after award season but kind of in a similar um a similar similar point of view here or similar similar note um the lighting I know I mentioned the cinematography is great and it is in the when you can see what's going on on screen but there was a darkness to the film in this that just felt very strange. Like, I don't know if this was, uh, if it's a 3D conversion job or if it is even in 3D. I don't think it is, but that was kind of the idea that I had. Um, 
as I was watching it because that's the only excuse that I can come up with that um that that would make it such a darker uh tint in in the film. Um let me see cuz I'm trying to google if um if it's in 3D anywhere cuz I don't think it is. Um no, it doesn't look like it's in 3D. So that that um well maybe uh um I don't think it is. But anyway, cuz I know an IMAX is in 2D, Dolby is 2D, all of that, but um I don't know what the deal is. I don't know why it looked so dark. Maybe it was a projector issue in my uh screening. But there were moments where it was like the the lighting was just terrible. Like I couldn't make out the facial expressions of people on screen. And that's a little bit of a problem. It's a minor nuisance in the movie, but it is a nuisance nonetheless. So I think that that should probably do it for my non-spoiler review. Um, uh, and then I'll go into spoilers here in a moment. But basically, the overall thoughts on this movie is that it could be and potentially will be a lot better but for the most part this is a three star movie that's kind of i mean it's it's three stars out of five so it's it's not bad it's it's a good experience or it's a good movie by uh regular metrics and everything but it's not something that uh blew me away the way that this type of movie could um the potential in this movie is out of this world. So maybe when we get that four-hour cut, it'll be a lot better. But as it stands now, this uh, theatrical cut was just uh, kind of a slog through uh, disconnected and and disassociated sequences and uh, points in Napoleon's life that don't really coalesce into a into a cohesive unit, basically. So uh, that's my roundabout way of saying that this movie was fine. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, the performances are good, like I said. So I don't know. Um, I'm going to go into spoilers and talk a little bit more in depth about some of the action and uh, the the writing of uh, Napoleon and Josephine. So I'm going to play a clip from the trailer. And then when I come back, I'm going to be spoiling Napoleon. So uh, check the show notes for timestamps if you stamps if you want to avoid that. But here's a clip from the trailer for Napoleon, and then we're going to go into spoilers for the movie. No doubt you've seen the chaos in the streets. We must make an example, or France will fall. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? I promise you brilliant successes. So, spoilers on for Napoleon. Um, again, the good. So, <laughs> the military engagements, the the use of military strategy, the the just sprawling epicness of that, uh, the way it's depicted in this movie is very very good. Um, it is it like he hasn't missed a beat in terms of choreographing and in filming uh, action scenes on this scale 
And it's thrilling. It's really good. It's really satisfying. It's actually better than it was in The Last Duel because a lot of these big battles and sequences are of a bigger scale than those in The Last Duel. Um, and it's just, it's massive. And I love the way that it visualizes and show showcases the actual military strategy of it. So in the trailer, there's the scene about the ice where they're all in a, like, um, I think it's I think it's the English or it might be... Russians? I'm not sure. I don't know. But they, they're in, led into, uh, Napoleon leads them into like a field of snow and then and pushes them back. And then they realize, oh, it's ice. And then they throw cannons or they shoot cannons and uh, a bunch of the the soldiers fall in the ice and freeze and die. Um, it's brutal. It's brutal. And it's, it's, it's depicted very well. The, that sense of propulsive action and that tension is masterful at times. It is something that is just very, very, um, impressive and remarkable. I love it. Um, but again, the characterization is just not quite there for me. This is not the nuanced character portrait of the historical figure of Napoleon Bonaparte that I think the movie thinks it wants to be. And having said that, like I said, in the non-spoiler review, it does really delve into the insecurities of Napoleon. Might I say that that's the only thing about about this character that it that it focuses on uh, his deep seated insecurity, which is, of course, a big part of his character of the historical figure um, and the way that it's depicted is decent. I mean, it's it's utilized in in some pretty interesting ways. I'll give it that. And it's also something that is it, it does inform some of his military engagements, I guess. But for the most part, he is just someone who is deeply hurt and butthurt over like Josephine cheating on him while he's away at war. And then, uh, and then after that, he is very upset about the fact that he cannot conceive a child with Josephine. And it goes through all of these like kind of archaic, uh, tests and everything where, um, like the, t the test of his, of his fertility is if he can get someone else pregnant and he does. And then he divorces Josephine, like the, the context, the, the, the way that that storyline all plays out is really solid. And I will say this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but Jesus, the, <laughs> uh, the lamb scene where they're having dinner and, uh, there's people at the table and he is yelling across that ridiculous table and saying that, you know, the lamb is a gift from God or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but he is yelling at her because she can't get pregnant or she won't get pregnant with his seed and won't give him an heir. That whole sequence reminded me so much of dinner party from the office, <laughs> like just the snip, snap, snip, snap, like that just, it reminded me so much of that. And in my head while watching it, I kind of chuckled at, at that thought, but then I was like, well, if I'm thinking about a sitcom from over a decade ago at this point, well over a decade ago, I think, um, that episode was, um, <clears throat> instead of being engaged with the plot or being very much like enraptured by the, by the story being told in front of me, that's probably a problem with the movie. <laughs> and, uh, and even though that kind of insecurity, that, uh, man boyish nature of Napoleon is done pretty well, uh, very well. In fact, it's probably the best part of the movie overall, but it's a three-star movie. So take, take from that what you will. 
Um, the real kind of, I guess, travesty of it is the underwriting of Josephine. Um, that scene that I referenced in the non-spoiler section where, uh, she basically makes him like, basically, uh, kind of talks down to him and says like, until like forces him to tell her that he would be nothing without her. And it's just this interesting power play. That's interesting kind of um, like who really wears the pants in this relationship kind of sequence, but it is in isolation throughout the entire movie. Like it is not, it, it doesn't feel and okay. So it feels like it is one part of a two and a half hour movie that has maybe more parts in the four-hour cut that was cut out. So it seems like the only line, or that is the only scene that made it into the theatrical cut that really explores the, like, fully explores the dynamic between uh, Napoleon and Josephine. And because of that, that scene exists in, like, an isolation booth in the movie. So even though it's a very well-done scene, it's like the only scene of its kind and it doesn't really have anything that grows out of it or grows into it or grows from it. Um, because after the divorce and everything, they become pen pals, I guess. And then, and then like they still have that bond and it leads to, uh, the trauma or the tragedy of her death, uh, as he's about to come back to visit her. And that causes a spiral that eventually causes him to lose, uh, the war and be exiled and live the rest of his days in exile, all of that, blah, 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 <laughs> which is just kind of breezed past, which I understand you don't have, like you have a finite amount of time to tell the story, but also tell the story then like it's just i don't know make it a mini series instead of making it a theatrical movie make it a 4 hour mini series on apple tv plus make it that um but uh but yeah but having this theatrical cut be this kind of disjointed unfocused narrative um that feels like a two and a half two and a half hour snapshot of uh napoleon's life feels like it feels not like a waste of time. It's not that severe, but it feels a little bit, um, laboring. It really feels like you have to put in a lot of work to really be engaged with this, with this movie. And it doesn't really feel like it's worth putting in that amount of work in this theatrical cut. Um, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Um, the scale of the, of the action was cool that I really liked, but really it was just for me, it was the, um, the focus on Napoleon and Josephine, but also the noticeable underwriting of the Napoleon and Josephine of it all. That was just kind of, I don't know. And then the movie ends in a, it ends in a way where he is in exile and then it just has the title card say like, you know, he died in exile and his last words were French army, Josephine. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's a nice button on it and everything. But also like, I feel like those, I feel like it didn't, it didn't tell that complete story of France army, Josephine, um, in the two and a half hour runtime. And that is ultimately why, this movie is not going to make my top 10. It is going to be something that I will re revisit when it ha hits Apple TV plus with the director's cut. But in this current form, I wasn't really that fond of it. Um, I rated it three stars because of how, uh, the scale of it and the performance of Joaquin Phoenix, at least. Um, 
but yeah, I could see myself talking myself into rating it two and a half stars, honestly. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was something else I was going to say about, about that. Um, uh, it was something about the Joaquin Phoenix's performance, but I can't remember. But anyway, um, yeah, it just, it just didn't really, um, didn't really do it for me. So that is my review of, um, Napoleon, which again is out in theaters. If you've seen it, let me know what you thought. Um, if not, I would say wait for Apple TV plus. Um, yeah. And like I said, I don't think it's screening in 3d anywhere. So I don't know what the deal is with the lighting in the movie, but there was a lot of sequences where I couldn't really see very clearly, um, what was going on. And that was a bummer because I don't know if that is a problem with the movie or me just getting old. Who knows? Um, yeah, that's a scary thought. So anyway, uh, those are my thoughts. That's my review of Napoleon. Like I said, um, uh, let me know what you thought and yeah. Um, okay. So that is review one down my secondary review, the, the supplemental review. I'm not sure what I'm going to call it in these episodes, but the secondary review tonight is May, December, uh, which is hitting Netflix on this Friday, this coming Friday, uh, December 1st. It's currently in limited release in theaters. Uh, it, it was open, it opened in theaters on November 17th. I'm going to share a non-spoiler review for this episode. So, uh, to bring us into that, since there's not going to be a spoiler review, I'm going to play a clip from the trailer for May, December. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm going to play a clip from the trailer. And then when I come back, we're going to do a non-spoiler review of May, December. It's such a pleasure to meet you. You are so sweet. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for doing this. It's so generous. Well, I want you to tell the story right, don't I? We're taller. You look taller on television, but we're basically the same size. We're basically the same. Feels like things just settled down, and now y'all are making a movie. It's a very complex and human story. I think it's hard to trust that you're going to represent Gracie as she was. I'm going to try. So May, December, the premise, according to IMDb, is 20 years after their notorious tabloid romance gripped the nation, a uh, married couple buckles under the pressure when an actress arrives to do research for a film about their past. Uh, This movie is directed by Todd Haynes and written by Sammy Birch. Uh, with a story by credit, I think, uh, uh, by Sammy Birch and Alex uh, uh, Mechanic. And the movie stars Natalie Portman as Elizabeth, uh, Charles Milton as Joe, and Julianne Moore as Gracie. And here's the thing. So I watched this movie the same day that I saw Napoleon. So I went and saw Napoleon, came home, uh, made some food, did, did some errands and stuff, and then watched May, December. And this movie kind of blew me away. I really, really liked it. Um, I ended up rating it four stars. I felt like this movie is, in a sense, it's kind of what I wanted out of Napoleon in a weird way. Not that they have anything in common, really, but basically... What this movie does so well is it has that rich, uh, intricate character study. And what it does is it just creates this, this is going to sound so, uh, cliched, but it is an absolute treat. Like it is, 
you it is it is a massive like character study among these characters these these three central characters Natalie Portman's Elizabeth uh Charles Melton's Joe and Julianne Moore's Gracie and it is so well done in terms of displaying these characters the way that the way that they are behind closed doors the way that they are privately the way that they are publicly also and the way that they interact with each other in just these a myriad of different ways. So what is really interesting is it's based or influenced heavily by uh, the Mary Kay Letourneau uh, controversy from the 90s, uh, where a uh, an elementary school teacher in her 30s uh, raped a 12-year-old student um, and then eventually married him and had children with him. Uh, before dying of cancer like a few years ago. Um, but, so this is loosely based on that. In this movie, um, Julianne Moore plays a woman who uh, seduces a seventh grader when she was in her 30s uh, while they worked together at a pet store. And it was a big sensationalist headline in this universe. She went to prison. She had children in prison. Um, and then now they're married uh, like what, 30 years on or, uh, well, close to 30 years, like probably like 25 years, I think. But anyway, or 20 years, that's what the plot summary says. So 20 years later, they're married and they are sending off their children to college. Like it is all taking place, uh, in the lead up to their, the, the twins, their, their twin, uh, uh, kids graduation from high school. And what I found so enthralling by this uh, in this movie was the way that the characters interact throughout the scenes. Like there's a scene where Natalie Portman is, uh, giving them, uh, or asking them questions over the dinner table and just the body language and the very just muted way that like Joe, for instance, talks, he's kind of distant. He is someone who isn't, he doesn't seem comfortable in his own skin and he doesn't seem like a a very expressive person and what i found fascinating by that uh, about that is the subtext of that and how it relates to gracie uh played by julianne moore uh gracie's interactions in the movie with like her kid with with their kids and with other people throughout the movie like there's a scene where she just has this uh it's like um her daughter is trying on dresses for graduation and she comes out like it's a very simple, it's very straightforward scene. The subtext is like overt, but uh, the daughter comes out of the dressing room wearing a sleeveless, a sleeveless dress. And she says, oh, I love this. The daughter says, I love this. And then and then Gracie responds with this. Oh, my God, that's great. And, you know, I wish I I wish when I was your age, I was that confident um, to show my arms like that, like just the backhanded, just cutting down of, of her and those insecurities that communicates so much about the character and how controlling she is and how it kind of gives a window into how she could have been and probably was very predatory in the fact that she pursued and, uh, and, and raped a, a preteen uh, who was working with her at a pet store. Um, 
and it's just it's this very rich character study among the those those two characters in particular but then you throw into the mix Natalie Portman's character as Elizabeth and she is an actress who is she's trying to research um she's trying to basically research how to portray Gracie on film and it's so interesting to me that this movie is um like she's she's researching for a TV movie like it it's not like a big budget high profile movie by any stretch it is a made for TV movie and what I find so, like, what I was so taken with with this movie was that the movie itself, Todd Haynes, like, knows it. Like, he, like he, he incorporates, like, the movie incorporates, like, these interesting, like, sensationalized melodramatic music cues at certain points. Like, there's a point early on where uh, Gracie... Gracie opens uh, the refrigerator door and then there's this sting of music that's like, oh, dun, dun, dun. And she's like, we're not going to have enough hot dogs. And it's like a barbecue. And it's just like those like little music cues and those little like sensationalized moments of melodrama feel like it is showing us what the TV movie would be like. And it's just a very nice, subtle touch to it. Um, Now, this is where I talk about how... It's shocking to me that I have not seen, this is my first time seeing a Todd Haynes movie. Um, and I know that that's crazy. Like I didn't, I didn't, I never, I didn't check out Dark Waters when it came out. Regretfully, I never saw Carol, but I heard great things about it. Um, and, uh, his older stuff has, has, uh, has, has, uh, skated, skated past me basically. Um, and I also didn't see the Velvet Underground, which was a documentary he made a couple of years ago. Um, yes. Uh, which, yeah. So I haven't seen anything that he's done aside from this. And what I found interesting is that <sighs> a lot of people are talking about how funny the movie is. And there is a lot of like dark humor. There's a lot of like dark, subtle humor in the, the way that these characters behave among each other. Um, and it's in that stilted awkwardness of how they interact that really kind of plays up the humor of it. But I didn't find it particularly funny. I was very much taken with, again, that, that relationship aspect among the characters, whether it's Gracie, uh, exhibiting controlling characteristics and, and manipulation tactics against Joe in a very, lived in and, um, normalized manner. Um, or if it was Joe exhibiting this level of just stunted growth and arrested development in the subtext of that being that, you know, what happened with him and Gracie when he was like, like right out of middle school or in the middle of middle school, really, um, what happened there prevented him from being a person from prevented him from cultivating his personality from from becoming and growing into an adult it stunted his growth and because of that we now see him 20 years later raising kids and like it's just this distance in this level of it's it doesn't appear that he's trapped like it doesn't it he doesn't perceive himself as being trapped in this relationship in this like ecosystem that he has cultivated for himself with Gracie over the last 20 years 
but rather it's just this is all he knows. This is not something that he is like he's even aware that there could be more. Um, and it just it's really interesting and it's kind of humorous, honestly. It's in a dark comic way that he is just so um lethargic and so disconnected from everything going on. Um and then you throw into the mix Elizabeth, who is getting more and more um closer and ingratiating herself within the family unit and between them as a couple. And the low-level, like, depravity that she exhibits and the weird, like, quirks that she exhibits as well, they reach a an interesting crescendo that I'm not going to obviously spoil because this is a, not spo- a non-spoiler review, but it's it's a very well-done character arc for her. And the button at the end of this movie is phenomenal. Like, it is it is such a great, like, way to close out the movie because it is just... Like, I do see the humor in it, but it is also a very well done and well demonstrated um, character study of people who are all around not very morally centered in some respects. So whether that's Elizabeth or Gracie or even Joe, they all have like these hidden motivations, these hidden uh, secrets that they are keeping from other people or these things that uh, haven't come to light about each other. And when it all comes to a head, it is engrossing. It is absolutely fantastic. And the dramatic angle of it is is phenomenal. Um, I really, I was really impressed with this, honestly. So yeah, so I ended up rating it four stars. Um, I had uh, texted Mike uh, this, and I'm going to announce it here. As of right now, May, December actually knocked Scream 6 from my perspective top 10 list of 2023. <laughs> and like, I, like if you like, obviously you guys heard my thoughts on the Scream news this, this week, but also just like I'm a massive Scream fan. Scream 6 should have been a shoe in to be on my top 10. And yet May, December has, has, uh, pushed it out of the top 10. And that's not necessarily because May, December is this groundbreaking, amazing movie. It is a very, very, very good movie that I'm very impressed with. But also this year has been very good. <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of really good stuff on my top 10 list and I can't wait to, to formulate it and, and finalize it and everything. So, uh, so that's my non-spoiler review of May, December. I really enjoyed it. I thought that the performances were fantastic. The plotting, the character, the character study among all of the characters, the intricacies, the nuances of those characters, their motivations, all of those work together so incredibly well to make a, and at times kind of tense and, uh, and a little bit, um, nerve wracking, a dramatic movie with hints of comedy throughout it. So, uh, yeah, so that's May, December. Very good. It's currently in limited release in theaters, uh, as of November 17th, and it is hitting Netflix on December 1st. So check it out. I highly recommend it. So those are my two reviews for the, for the week. Um, we are weekly. I keep saying it and it's manifesting it. So it's happening. We're weekly now. Um, but I am 
going to share a little bit of potpourri, which if this is your first episode listening uh, to the Obsessive Viewer, potpourri is a section where we uh, kind of wind down and do very brief micro reviews of things we've watched or give our thoughts on things we're looking forward to. Uh, the tagline is whatever we want, as long as it smells good, Jesus, whatever we want, as long as it smells good, it's the potpourri section. So I have two things for potpourri this week on the Obsessive Viewer. The first one will be brief, and it's another kind of clandestine plug for the Patreon, but I finally, after months, finished watching The Last of Us Season 1. And on Patreon, on the $2 level and above, uh, including the $4 sci-fi level, I reviewed every episode of The Last of Us starting in January, and then I finally completed that with episode nine just the last week. And man, this show is absolutely phenomenal. And I'm excited because now I feel like I can watch or I can play The Last of Us Part Two and I can be devastated by it. I can be whatever emotions it's going to throw at me. I will feel those emotions and then I will process them and then I'll watch the show when it airs in probably 2025 uh, and I'll review those on Patreon. But um, just the character building, the, the level of detail in the recreation of video game moments in this is jaw-dropping. I, like I said, I reviewed every episode. I, I think it's a total runtime of like six hours worth of Last of Us reviews. It's on Patreon, but I'm also going to have a tab on the Patreon shop that where you can just buy just those reviews uh, if you don't want to do a monthly um, uh, subscription to Patreon. But basically, um, what I loved so much about The Last of Us is the way, again, that they were able to recreate like beat for beat moments in the video game in the television medium. And that is big because video games have never been able to be adapted basically. And like there were moments like when, when watching episodes of the show, I felt like I was watching the game, like, like literal absolute immaculately detailed visualization of the game and it's it didn't stop. It was very truthful, very um it was very uh very much uh in service of the source material. It was honoring it. It did not stray too far away from it where it did go different routes. It enhanced the story. Now, mind you, this is also uh very much tied to like Neil Druckmann uh being a producer and and writer. Uh, for the show and also being the person who made the game. Um, and also just the fact that Naughty Dog Productions, the video game, uh, they, like the video game studio, like they they tell immaculate stories in their games. Like they tell incredibly well-crafted stories. So it's kind of on paper, it should be a no-brainer that they would make a very, very uh, engrossing and dramatic adaptation of it. And I'm so glad that they were able to do that with The Last of Us. And it frustrates me to no end that they couldn't do that with Uncharted. Uh, but that's a whole different thing. But I loved The Last of Us. And I know that there was, um, from what I understand, there was some uh, criticisms over the finale. I thought the finale was perfect. It was the perfect just coming together of these two characters, solidifying their bond and again, that like point to point recreation of video game moments in that final episode was some of the best 
uh, television and movies that I've watched this year. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, so that is my uh, quick potpourri review of The Last of Us. Um, and to round out potpourri, well, once again, I will I will say check out Patreon for more on The Last of Us and other stuff. So patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. My voice cracks just as much in those recordings as they do on this show, I promise you. Uh, so, um, to round out potpourri, uh, I also watched Good Burger 2, um, <laughs> which is streaming on Paramount Plus. It came out, uh, this past weekend, um, man, uh, so I posted on TikTok and Instagram and, uh, and Facebook, but basically Good Burger 2 is a movie that. I wasn't excited about, and it's not good. It, I wasn't excited for it. It wasn't good, but I felt uh, somewhat of a sense of not duty to watch it, but I felt like I was at least a little bit obligated to watch it, if only because I was a massive, massive, massive fan of Good Burger when I was growing up. So much so that I I said in my video that I remember seeing it in the theater, uh, but also like I wore out the VHS tape and I would watch it incessantly. But also something I didn't mention in the video on TikTok was that I like owned the copy of the novel that came out uh that was like it was it was the sequel to Good Burger. It, it had nothing to do with the story in the in this movie uh, obviously, but uh it was called Good Burger to Go and it was where Ed was following or like chasing a customer around the world so that he could give him back his change or something. And they fall into this whole like conspiracy plot line and, and stuff. I don't remember exactly, but I remember having that book. Um, and I was just, I don't know. I, I loved that movie. I loved Good Burger so much. So having said that, Good Burger 2 is not good. Um, it is, uh, it's a mixed bag. If you're a fan of Good Burger, if you're a fan of 1990s era Nickelodeon, um, there is going to be plenty of nostalgia in this movie that will play to those memories. And for the most part, it works. It works really well. The nostalgia of this movie, the nostalgia you feel in particular, the nostalgia that I felt watching Keenan and Kel together again, that was worth the worth the price of admission, in my opinion, to watch it on a streaming service that I'm using the login information from a friend. But anyway, it it was it was worth my time to watch Good Burger 2, just to see those two interact again and to see the hijinks of Good Burger. Um, it is all heightened. It is obviously like Ed is an out of this world character. He is in his own universe. In this installment, the Good Burger 2 does not does not normalize him at all. In fact, it goes it goes full bore into just absolute insanity. And it's silly. It is absolutely silly. I kind of it's kind of a little bit reminiscent of like what Paul Rubens does with Pee Wee Herman. I'm sure that that was probably a big uh, influence on on the making of Good Burger and figuring out the Ed character. But here in Good Burger 2, like he's he's older now, he has kids. And the scene where he introduces Dex to the kids is, it's, it's really, it's so dumb, but it's so funny. Uh, it's entertaining. I, I had a smile on my face. 
Um, some issues I had with it though, it, the plot is not that good. Um, it's just, it's just overall, just not a very good plot. Um, for the most part, the first like half of the movie is basically, uh, Dex trying to get money from Ed so that he can start a new venture because his other one fell through. Um, and it's, I appreciate that it's not a rehash of the first movie because the first movie had a lot of nefarious stuff between, between Dex trying to manipulate Ed into doing things for him. There's a little bit of that here, but it is more out of a, um, a sense of duty to his friend and a bottom line that would spell, you know, benefits for everyone. And then when it, when it falls apart and the, and the kind of conflict really begins, it's late in the movie. And then there's a whole villain that's like unveiled late in the movie that it turns it into a kind of rush to, to the end, a rush to the climax. And by the time you're kind of catching up to it, it doesn't really, it, the, the mystique, the, the, uh, the the flair of that nostalgia that you're watching this movie for uh doesn't really work it it's worn off by that point and it kind of overstays its welcome so yeah so and and the other big big thing that i i just could not abide in this movie was the cameos it is incessant with cameos and some of them are good there's some pretty solid uh cameos a couple of like wink wink at the camera cameos to an extent uh, but more subtle than that um this one ridiculous like i don't even know if i'd say cameo but a, a reveal of a character from the from the original movie is so heightened and surreal and dumb but also very entertaining and silly uh and it just really worked it really worked um, so it's a mixed bag. The cameos are dreadful for the most part. Uh, the plot is a little bit lacking, but that chemistry between Keenan Mitchell and Kel Tom or Kel Mitchell, Keenan Thompson, Jesus, uh, is undeniable. It's very good. And, uh, it's kind of fun to be in that good burger world again, um, after so many years. So it's, it's not a good movie. It's not a terrible movie, but it is a movie. So, uh, yeah, check out Good Burger 2 if you plan to. Let me know what you thought of it. Uh, it's on Paramount Plus. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It was, it, there are good and bad things about it. So, anyway. That will do it for episode 404 of the Obsessive Viewer Podcast, uh, now weekly. Um, once again, if I could just give a quick plug for the Patreon, a uh, lot of really good stuff happening on Patreon. I love doing it, and I uh, really want uh, people to find it, if only so that they can listen to more of my incessant rambling. And I do a lot of fun, like, uh, series of reviews there, and it's a whole bunch of stuff. Stephen King, book, movie, TV, all of that. Um, everything, not just Stephen King, but books and movies and TV and everything. Um, there is a, just a massive amount of stuff there. So check that out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. It also pays me and, uh, gives me both the financial stability, uh, with an asterisk, uh, to keep going and, uh, gives me motivation to, uh, to continue on, uh, this merry journey of a podcast life. Uh, so check that out, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And of course, check out the other shows. We've got Tower Junkies, which this week we're going to be reviewing both the short, short story and 
movie adaptation of Stephen King's 1408. So that is coming on Tower Junkies this week, hopefully. Um, and then Anthology is my solo podcast all about the Twilight Zone. I'm going to be relaunching that soon with a bonus episode series reviewing season six of Black Mirror episode by episode. So look out for that in the coming weeks. Um, as for Obsessive Viewer, next week on the show, yes, we're sticking to weekly. Again, I'm going to keep saying that. <laughs> In episode 405, as of right now, the plan is to have a main review of Dream Scenario, which is going to be in theaters. Uh, I'm very excited for that. I saw the trailer recently and it looks really good. Um, and then the supplemental or secondary review is going to be for It's a Wonderful Knife, which is going to be on shutter um this coming friday on december 1st so uh the, that's the plan for episode 405 i am going to rest my voice and get this posted on patreon because patreon gets early access everyone else gets access to this on thursday um so another plug for patreon check that out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and of course if you want to write to me uh send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com and tweet me, do all of that social media stuff, and follow me on Letterboxd at Obsessive Viewer. Um, yeah, so thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV, book, and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, Go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Um, but that backstory is just so good. It's so good and it's so well done in terms of, of uh, keying into the, uh, to the, to the themes and the motifs of the movie involving marginalized people in, uh, in particular and how they are viewed as monsters or they are viewed as people that are going to disrupt you know, the, the, the vast majority of privileged people's lives. And it's just such a, such an elegant metaphor. And it's something that also is, it's, it's something we've seen before. We've, we've, we're seeing this more and more in mainstream media, which is great. That is something I am, I am a huge fan of. I'm very happy with that. Um, and this is probably the most prominent and direct that I've seen in a while, uh, so it definitely gets uh, some points on that front because it's just a very well done, um, well done kind of plot for that purpose. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.